What's up, weirdos? Welcome back to season two of the Mysteriously Eclectic podcast. It feels good to be back. Mm-hmm. We're a bit warmed up, too, because we actually recorded our first episode of our bonus season, The Bewitching Hour, last Friday. So we knocked the cobwebs off for you guys. And if you already checked out that, you got a bit of an appetizer and a moose bouche. I was going to say a moose yes. bouche. So this is why we're friends. Yeah, this is why we're friends. <laughs> a little bit of an appetizer of today's episode. So slip into something cozy. Zip up your parka, brush off that dog sled, and snuggle up with your favorite husky. Because today's episode, we're going to discuss the Alaskan Triangle. here real quick. We mentioned in the opener that we have a bonus season. So the Bewitching Hour is just a way to get twice the content and support your favorite podcast at the same time. Our bonus season, we discuss more mysteries and it's a bit less buttoned up, a bit more uncensored and uncut. And we hope to have a few more special guests. We'll discuss things that couldn't fit in our regular episodes. We'll dig deeper into topics or maybe just get to things we didn't have a chance to cover all the stories we wanted to. We might discuss some topics that either didn't totally fit in our normal format or maybe aren't as G-rated as the normal content we discuss. We also record these so you can either watch or listen to episodes, whatever you want to do. So if you want to like actually watch us make idiots of ourselves while we record, be our guest. You can sign up right where you listen to your podcast normally and it'll walk you through the subscription and it's like the cheapest subscription that you're going to find on the internet probably. Oh, so sure. Yeah. So support your favorite podcast and get twice the content. It's a win-win. And if not, this show will always, always, always be free. And we love you guys all the same. So that's it. Let's get into it. So we all know about the Bermuda Triangle, right? Right. Yeah. So what's the Alaskan Triangle, you might ask? Well, it's a triangle in Alaska. (laughs) It's essentially the same idea. It's a mysterious expanse of land where the unexplained seems to be commonplace. The cities of, oh boy, guys. I know. Yutkavik. Oh, I actually put Yutkiavik. Yutkiavik. Oh, nice. Yes. Yutkiavik, Anchorage, and Juneau roughly make up the points of the triangle. And most people, I'm sure, have heard of Anchorage and Juneau, but I'm assuming not many of you have heard of Yutkiavik. Or maybe you have, but you have absolutely no clue what I'm talking about because I'm just like totally botching the pronunciation, <laughs> which is likely. But this city was formerly called Barrow, Alaska, which I've actually heard about before. It's the northernmost Alaskan, or I'm sorry, it's the northernmost American city. That's its motto, actually. And literally, it's at the very tippy tippy top of Alaska on the coast. I feel like this city is is pretty boring if their motto is, we're the northernmost American city. (laughs) Yes. I'm pretty sure that the only reason I've heard of this city is there was like a Discovery Channel show that Mm -hmm. talked about people in like remote areas of Alaska. And they were in Barrow, Alaska. Hmm. I'm pretty sure. So 
anyway, for our bonus episode listeners, Yutskivek, <laughs> if I'm saying that right, comes from the Inupiaq. I think that's like the, the native language up there. Name for snowy owl. Mm -hmm. So a bit of a callback to the gnome snowy owl sighting UFO weirdness. So if you don't know what we're talking about, check that bonus episode out. So within this loosely defined triangle, all sorts of weird shenanigans happen. And it seems that things tend to go missing. In fact, more than 20,000 people have vanished there. There are UFO sightings, weird creatures. Even space-time seems to behave differently in this space. And just like the Bermuda Triangle, there are planes that seem to have just up and vanished in the Alaskan Triangle. And they are still just as missing today as they were then. So the first one we're going to talk about today is the missing Douglas C-54D. First of all, the Douglas C-54 Skymaster is a five-engine transport aircraft used by the U.S. Army and Air Forces in World War II and the Korean War. So this particular Douglas was carrying 44 people that January in 1950, and it was leaving the Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, Alaska, bound for Great Falls, Montana. And the plane had an eight-man crew along with 36 passengers, two civilians, which those two civilians were a woman and her infant son. This flight was part of the Strategic Support Squadron, Strategic Air Command, out of Briggs Air Force Base in Texas. The Strategic Air Force Command was responsible for command and control of the Strategic Bomber and Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Components. Try saying that. Oh, yeah, I fast. know. No kidding. <laughs> From 1946 to 1992, according to Wikipedia. And it's really hard to understand what the purpose of this flight was. And unless my usual internet sleuth resources are failing me, you can't even really figure out who was on the flight. And this is probably because of the nature of what they were carrying. I'm not saying they were carrying an actual like intercontinental ballistic missile with like a woman and a child on the plane that were civilians. Yes. <laughs> I'm assuming they weren't carrying a missile, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was probably something important and pertaining to either our defense or personnel who are involved in our defense in some way. This is a very common flight path, and it was planned to take them from Anchorage to Juneau, and they had a planned check-in two hours into the flight over Snag Yukon, and when they did this, everything was normal. They checked. So, did they end up hitting a snag? <laughs> <laughs> I think they did. There was a snag in the plan. No. <laughs> so when they checked in, everything was normal. And the next check-in was supposed to be in another town in the Yukon that I can't pronounce and I'm not mm -hmm. going to try. And this is where they did not check in. And obviously they never arrived in Montana. So the search effort immediately was underway and it was sort of lucky timing because there was a U.S.-Canada joint war game scenario that was planned. So there were actually tons of aircraft and personnel already in the area ready to join in. So 85 American and Canadian planes were involved in the search and 7,000 personnel formally searched over 350,000 miles. And this isn't even counting the people who were unofficially involved in the search, you know, 
fishermen and civilians and people that were just out who were looking. Two planes and two radio stations in the Yukon heard unintelligible radio signals near the second check-in location, but the source of the signal was never actually pinpointed. There were also sightings of a large plane near Beaver Lake in British Columbia, and I also read somewhere about there being a fire spotted somewhere, but then when I went back and I tried to find where I actually found that source, I couldn't actually find it, so I don't know, maybe I made that up in my head. Either way, I wouldn't be surprised. Read a lot about airplane crashes in the last couple days. And that's all. There's nothing else that's ever been found on this plane ever since. Like they've never found anything. Now, I'm sure many people are listening and they're like, it's Alaska. There's wilderness. Stuff goes missing all the time, I'm sure. But there's more to this that just makes it really odd. So first of all, keep in mind, this is happening 55 miles from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. During the nuclear arms race, this was one of the most strategic nuclear locations in the world, and it was one of the most surveilled pieces of airspace in the world at this time. And this wasn't just some bush plane, it was part, it was part of the Strategic Air Command. And it was so classified, we don't even know who was on the airplane. So clearly there was some strategic purpose to this flight. So it had to have some type of asset on it. So it's hard to believe that no one had eyes right. on what was happening. I guess we know that weather wasn't a factor. We also know that Russia was unlikely to have downed it because there's no way that Russia could have gotten that far into our airspace without us knowing about it. So the other thing that was weird is three planes went down during the course of the search for the missing Douglas. My gosh. Yeah. One crashed near the southern edge of the triangle, and we know that it stalled. And I mean, that could have just happened, you know, with conditions being right. We know that it is rough conditions, you mm -hmm. know, in, in this part of the world. The other crashed near the southern area of the search grid, and we never found out why that plane went down. They never released an official report of what happened with that plane. So the people that were on these planes, are they dead? No, from my understanding, they were all fine. It's oh. just the plane crashed. My yeah, gosh. they were recovered, the plane crashed. A week later, yet another plane goes down right by the last known location of the missing Douglas. This plane was two times the size of the Douglas C-54. It was a B-46 and it was a nuclear bomber. So this was not part of the search effort. This plane just happened to be out in that area in a completely different capacity. This is really sus. Yes. So this plane was actually practicing a strike on the Soviets. It was on its way to Texas and it was flying over the Pacific and then it entered Alaskan airspace and it loses power for some reason. We don't know why. It crashes over British Columbia. And remember I said it was carrying a nuclear bomb. It was a nuclear bomber. Oh my gosh. It loses the nuclear bomb. Oh yes. my gosh. Yes. <laughs> the, the nuclear bomb was never found. Stop it. Yes. It was never it found. It was never found. So there's just a rando nuclear bomb oh, out yeah. there. Yes. And, and get this. It was the first nuclear bomb in history that was just lost. Oh, I'm so glad yes. we're known for this. So when I hear this, I'm going, wait, it was the first? Not the only. Oh. Just the first? So there was more? 
So we lost more nuclear bombs that we were unable to find. Is that what it's telling me? Great. That's great. <laughs> yes. You know, this seems like something we would find if yes. we were like, let's go on a hike near a place that we talked about in our podcast. Like, yes. what's this? That's oh. a nuclear bomb. And that was the last that we heard yes. of the mysteriously eclectic crew. <laughs> they were exploded. <laughs> So the record of this incident was eventually declassified, which is why we actually know that it happened. But at the time, they didn't know anything about it. So if you would have been, you know, a contemporary of this disappearance and looking through, you know, the news articles and keeping up to date with it, you would have had no idea that these two things happened at the same time because it was classified. So if you are keeping track, this is... Four planes that have gone missing or crashed. I mean, like two two missing planes. And I guess I can, let me clarify. I don't think, and I could be wrong. I don't think that the, the nuclear bomber plane was missing. I think those people ejected and I think the plane was found. I think it was just the bomb that was missing. So okay. let me, let me restate that. That's three crashed planes one missing plane and one missing bomb in a 30 day period. So, yeah. So all this is a little sus, but it's not the only high profile missing plane in the Alaskan triangle. We have another that happened several years later. So let's flash forward to 1972. Hale Boggs, which is quite the name, by the way. Yeah. Hale Boggs. Why this person was not a, a weatherman? He should have been. Stinging perfect. I know. Hail Boggs. It also kind of sounds like Hail Bob. With the comment. That's what I kept oh. thinking of. Hail Bob. Oh. So Hail Boggs, he was the House leader who was a Democrat out of Louisiana. He was campaigning in Alaska for re-election of their congressman, Representative Nick Baggage, who was hoping for a second term. So just to give an idea, our current House majority leader is Steve Scalise. Or Scalisi, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, he is well, he's a pretty well-known figure if you stay up to date in politics. I honestly like I type his name frequently in like at work, mm-hmm. you know, but I have never actually had to say it out loud. I know, isn't it? I have names like that. And then I'm like, and then I panic. I'm like, I, I should know. know this. As I'm saying it out loud right now, I'm like, is it Scalise or Scalisi? It's like <laughs> it's like the first time that I heard the name Hermione in the movies and i was like (laughs) i did not pronounce it the way i was reading that yeah (laughs) shout out to my uh my aunt she yes my aunt through marriage is hermione Mm -hmm. who i actually just saw this weekend so anyway um so just if you you know pay attention to current events that can kind of give you an idea of like how big of a figure this was so this was a well-known guy So I'll link to this in the show notes, but if you listen to episode one of Missing in Alaska by iHeartMedia, which is a podcast, and if that sounds kind of familiar to our OG listeners, that's because it's the same source that I use for the majority of our very, very, very first episode, ironically. I used Missing on 9-11 
um, by iHeartMedia for the majority of our episode on the mysterious disappearance of Sneha Phillips. A piece where they have, or a recording at a dinner where you can hear clips of Boggs and Baggage speak um, the night before they went missing. And that's the actual last public appearance for either of them. So it's kind of interesting to like put yourself in the moment. They recorded themselves at dinner? Okay. It was it was a fundraiser. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So someone okay. else did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Don Johns, at the same time, was a bush pilot based out of Fairbanks, Alaska. And he got a call that he would need to fly to Anchorage to pick up baggage and fly him to Juneau. So a mechanic checked over his plane. Everything was good. And when Johns landed in Anchorage, his girlfriend actually accompanied him from Fairbanks to Anchorage and met him there. They went to dinner and it was actually his girlfriend who saw all of them off that day. She was the last person to see Hale Boggs, Nick Baggage, and their aide Russell Brown clear the runway in their yellow and white Cessna 310C just before 9 a.m. on October 16th. Johns had a conversation with FAA flight specialists at 9.09, reporting that everything was normal, he was asked if he had an emergency gear and locator beacon on board, in which he answered that he did. At 1.15, the U.S. Air Force Rescue Coordination Center was contacted because the plane was overdue in Juneau. And at 3, the plane would have officially been out of gas. So at this point, a rig team searched... Oh my gosh. I like rag team. <laughs> rag team. <laughs> a ragtag search team was scrambled. It was initially just fishermen and private pilots, anyone who could get out before dark, because it was three, it was 3 p.m. already. The weather was also changing, making the initial search hindered, which how very missing 411, if I must say. Oh yeah. And so remember back to the Amelia Earhart episode? I remember everything about that episode. <laughs> I love that episode. Surprising, since we were a little toasted when we <laughs> yes. recorded that. There was a little girl with a ham radio who thought that she might have heard Amelia Earhart. Remember? Yeah. Also, can I just tell you, every time... Are we talking about toilets again? No. <laughs> every time I say ham radio, I picture, like, a cartoon ham. <laughs> and people, like, holding it up going, hello? And it looks like a cartoon drawing of a ham. Yes. No, that's all I'm going to see, too. Thank you. I just wanted to really share that image with you. So anyway, that's kind of what happened here because, okay, I just have to give you a visual because I have dual monitors. And I... so in order to get my, like, everything that needs to plug into my computer, plugged into my computer, I have to sacrifice my mouse. And so I'm using my laptop mouse. And every time I go to switch back from like our recording interface to my notes, I lose my mouse. So poor Aaron has to watch me like struggle to find my mouse to get it back over to my notes so that I can scroll down. And she's probably ready to slap me. So I didn't know that you didn't want to use your mouse. I can make your mouse work on here. Can you? I can. <laughs> Okay, I'd love to do it in a, in, during a break because every time I'm like trying to sneakily not make it obvious that I don't know what I'm about to talk about next. <laughs> and 
I can't scroll down because my mouse is on something completely different. And my normal computer is a touch screen, but my monitor, which is where all my notes are, is not. So I can't scroll down. I can't do anything. And I'm just trying to make my mouse show up. So anyway, since you can't see what's happening, and these are the little pieces that you can see if you listen to our bonus episodes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, poor Erin. She has to deal with my technologically unsavvy self. So anyway, okay, so back to the ham operators. So he's on his little slimy ham operator <laughs> radio. Why is ham always so wet? I hate I touching know. it. That's why I don't like ham. Ugh. I don't like processed meats. So in Nevada City, California, this guy named Roy Harris heard a plane calling Mayday. And they said that they were over water, but they were close to land. And they were trying to get as close to land as possible because they knew that they weren't going to be able to make it because they were having engine problems. And it sounded like the plane was going down, hence the mayday. And he gave a description of where they thought they were. So he called the police and they took down a report from Roy. So another ham operator. A slimy <laughs> ham operator. Just, I can't. <laughs> so... This other guy said that he heard someone say, Alaska Mobile requesting assistance 12 miles southeast of Juneau, 70 mile an hour headwinds with only eight miles of gas left. They had landed earlier in the day to ride out a storm, but according to the ham operator, the caller or whatever, I don't know what you call them, the person that was like coming through. Yeah, coming through. He said that. It was the same type of plane. So it was a Cessna 310C and the pilot did read off the tail numbers, but it was garbled. So he couldn't really hear what he was saying that well, but he did take the numbers down. And the pilot also said something about hitting rocks. So there were maybe three, four additional other people who heard similar transmissions as well. So the accounts were very consistent with only two major inconsistencies. One was the tail number which it was garbled in any case. So it was hard to tell what they were saying. And the other inconsistency was how many minutes of gas were left. So otherwise, all these accounts were almost identical except for those two discrepancies. But despite the discrepancies, the tail numbers were very similar between the mm -hmm. two. They were just a little different. And they all described it as garbled. So, I mean, it's kind of like, we heard a garbled tail number. This is how I interpreted it. This is how I interpreted it. But everybody, what they took down was actually very close to the actual tail number. The other discrepancy was the gas, you know. And I don't know how far off these were, despite, like, from, you know, the accounts. I don't know how far off it was. Or if they were kind of close. They were in the same, you know, vicinity. I don't know. So... That happened, which was interesting. And then they all were able to kind of calculate where they heard the, the signal coming from. And they all honed in on some area near Juneau, which I thought was interesting. So it's kind of too many people hearing the same thing for it to be BS, I guess. Yeah. So I think everybody agreed that what people were hearing they were probably really hearing it the main question was was it a hoax or not mm -hmm. so was the transmission real or was it a hoaxer and i don't think anyone really knew that for sure i guess i don't my question is why would you why would you think it was a hoax i guess yeah so i don't know 
So the other thing that was interesting is that several residents thought that they heard a large plane fly over Whittier, Alaska. And no plane of a bigger size, which I don't know a lot about planes, but my dad is an airport director mm -hmm. of a small airport by where they live. And um, they live right next to an airport. He used to actually have a small pilot license. So I've kind of grew up with him talking about planes. And I don't think a Cessna is a, that big of a plane. So I find this kind of interesting that they said this. I don't think it's that big of a plane. Like I mean, I'll have to take your word for it because I've got no clue. <laughs> so I, I mean, with what they're talking about, I don't know much, but I don't think this is a big plane. The, the piece that I got from my source, which was the Missing in Alaska podcast, said that several residents thought that they heard a large plane fly over Whittier, Alaska, and no large plane was scheduled to fly over the town that day. So... People took this as that they thought that the plane meant that they made it through to at least Whittier, Alaska. So I don't know. I found that a little confusing. Someone can maybe write in the notes and let me know if I am wrong. But it just kind of dawned on me as I was reading this. I, I don't think this was a big plane. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of confusing. But anyway, if this was, you know, enough for them to realize that whatever they thought that they saw was the plane, it would have meant that they made it through Portage Pass. And Portage Pass was a big, dangerous glacier that was bordered by mountain ranges. So this was a super, super treacherous leg of the trip where many planes disappeared. And my understanding- Why are they taking this direction? I think what? it was kind of like the only way to go because there was like two big mountains from my understanding. Straight up, I'd be like, no, then. Yeah, no, I'm not oh, doing oh, it. Oh, the pilots, oh, we're about to go over a super treacherous area where many planes have disappeared. I'd be like, no. <laughs> we're not like, going. Yeah. So I guess, like, initially, this is kind of where they assumed that they probably, like, went down, I guess. That was my understanding. And so when people thought that they saw a plane, and I'm just assuming that there must have been more that they went off of than just, we saw a large plane fly over Whittier. I don't mm. know. Um, that made them think that it was this particular plane. I, I, maybe it was the coloring or something. There must have been more because I don't think this was a big plane. So it shifted their focus of the, sh the search thinking, okay, we they made it out of that pass, which was good because the pass was not... It was no bueno. It was not a good place to be, I guess. And I looked up some pictures of it and it literally is. It's like a giant glacier and it's like a chute, basically. So oh there's, yes. <laughs> so from my understanding, the planes kind of use it as a way to like shoot through these two mountains. It's a natural pass through. But the problem is, is that the wind shoots through there too. And it makes kind of like a shoot for like snow and fog and everything. And so there's very low visibility. It's narrow, it's windy. And if you mess up, you run into a mountain. Great. Yeah. That's wonderful. Sounds like a good place to yeah, be. Just where I'd want to go. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like at this point now they're shifting past Portage Pass and they're looking more in the Prince William Sound, um, Whittier area, which I keep calling it the Prince Albert Sound. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> because of a Prince Albert piercing, it's just like popped in my head. Don't Google yeah, that. I was just going to say don't. Nope. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just 
Don't Google it. Don't Google it. So obviously there was a, a huge search effort. And if you want to know more about how they searched and everything, um, you should listen to that Missing in Alaska podcast because I'm not really going to focus on that right now. Um, but this was two congressmen. So obviously this was a huge deal. I mean, imagine that now if our house majority leader went missing, you know, yeah, that would be huge. So this was a huge deal. So I'm going to spare you all the details of the search and I'm going to skip to the main details of the highlights, I guess. The first main detail about this search that they did was they used an SR-171 Blackbird. Now you're familiar with that, Erin, right? Oh, you, you know it, the, the Blackbird. <laughs> the Blackbird. I prefer the SR-172, and I think it's pronounced senior. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Thank you for correcting me. No, so the SR-171 Blackbird was a top-of-the-line secret spy plane. And it flew a grid search over the main search area. And what was helpful about this is it could photograph 60 miles of terrain an hour. So any debris that would be there was picked up using this technology. But unfortunately, it was all quickly ruled out. So just think about that for a second. I mean, this isn't something that they use during like a normal downed plane situation this was like a huge asset for them and they found nothing not even other down planes not even a nuclear bomb yeah, they didn't find the nuclear bomb they did find other downed planes they did find other debris but all of it was ruled out either it was the wrong color it was the wrong plane so unfortunately wait wait they did find planes yeah and they were just like not ours and yeah they kept going. <laughs> well i'm Great. assuming there were no survivors you know i mean i don't think they were like Sorry, man floating out in the middle of the ocean. I picture them going through that pass and just finding like a, a cliff at the bottom of it with like 50 planes stacked on top of each other. Like, could it be there? No. Nah, that's not no. ours. So in that same vein, <laughs> so recall there was an emergency beacon on the plane. Mm-hmm. Well, the Air Force detected two emergency signals initially during the search, and the first was weak, and it was way outside of the search zone. So it made no sense to be the plane, but like what we were just saying, I hope that they like checked on it. Right. <laughs> I hope they weren't just like, oh, that's not it. And this isn't what, on. this is not what they paid me for. They paid me yes. to find this plane. <laughs> wasn't some poor soul out there being like hello and the guy just flies by and he's like no <laughs> the second was just west of juno so that actually seemed like it could have been it it lasted for 40 minutes but it died out before they were able to pinpoint exactly where it was so that was also a bust So in 1972, search commander, Air Force Major Henry Stockard, told reporters that 95% of what they are looking for, they find. Now, I don't know if that is in Alaska or that's just in general, the commander of like this search, when they search for planes, you know, in the Air Force or whatever, Mm -hmm. they are able to find it. Um, he, another official said that of the previous 1,200 planes to disappear, they had only three that they hadn't 
found. According to an Air Force document that was obtained by the Missing in Alaska podcast, had the aircraft or the occupants been able to send an electronic signal, the probability of finding the airplane was 99%. So given all the factors, you know, where they were, who was searching, all of the factors, they would have been able to find it with 99% certainty had they been able to send an electronic signal. The probability of detection if there were fires or other visual signals, so had it started on fire, had they been able to set some type of like, you know, fire intentionally, that was also 99%. The probability of finding the aircraft if it was intact in the search area. So that would have been 97%. The probability of finding wreckage without fires and without an electronic signal was 95%. Mm-hmm. So in the search area. So like given the worst case scenario, as long as it was in the search area, there was a 95% chance that they would have found it. And in the highest probability area, it was 99% that they still would have found it. Okay. So given all that, so this tells me a couple of things. Number one, there was probably more assets looking for this than we realize, right. you know, more technology than we realize. Mm-hmm. Number two, the chances are greater that they would have found it than that they would not have found it, right? Right. Something, found something, and they didn't find it. Bizarre. So this also comes to question. So, okay, maybe the chances weren't 99%, but that 1950 case where the plane was missing, mm-hmm. for them to not find that either, yeah. you know, the chances were probably pretty darn good then too. Mm-hmm. And they still didn't find that. And that also brings into question, and I know that this is off the top the topic, this is another tangent, but one that we're going to cover later in the season. But when you think about that missing Malaysian Airlines, if in 1972, the chances were 99% that we would find it, how do we not know where that airplane is? So I just find this really crazy. So when we go back to that first point where I said, I know that this is Alaska, things go missing in Alaska, like, well, duh, you know, it's just missing in the, you know, whatever. How did we not find it? I don't know. It just seems kind of crazy to me. Also, how did we not find the nuclear bomb? I can't get over that. <laughs> you think it would be giving out some type of radiation? Something. Or heat? Something. I, f- I don't know. I had just... I, I specifically didn't read these stories because I knew you were covering them. Yes. But now that you're covering them, I have all these like theories. Yes. And yes. I, I won't get into them. So we're going to cover theories later on. But also, I much like I did in season one, I love the iHeartMedia um, Missing in Alaska work that they've done. And they go on a whole tangent Um, where they really dig into, we're digging into more of the paranormal aspects. They dig into more of the um, nuts and bolts, like concrete um, conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And so I highly recommend that podcast if you want to look into more of the like political conspiracy theories behind it, because there's a lot of stuff there that kind of makes you go, huh, too, you know? Yeah. So I'll link in the show notes. Check that out. 
So sadly, both Hale Boggs and Nick Bagich were reelected on election day to their respective offices. Special elections would need to be organized to replace both elected representatives once they were presumed lost. Now, there are a lot of politicians who've died in plane crashes, a lot. So there is a whole, as I mentioned, conspiracy angle on this. So yeah, just check out that podcast. Spoiler alert, however, the host is suspicious as to whether these people were actually lost in the Alaskan wilderness, as am I. But obviously, we have different reasons why we think that. Mm -hmm. I'm obviously more on the paranormal side of things. So we discussed some disappearances that started in the sky. Let's talk about some mysterious lights in the sky. Perhaps maybe that's what happens to these planes. Maybe they encounter something otherworldly. Maybe they flew into some type of like doorway, something that these things use to travel into our universe and they got caught up into it. So let's talk about that. So the most famous of all of these is that of Japan Airline Cargo Flight 1628. And some of you, if you are into like UFO stuff, you might have heard of this because this was a very famous UFO case. This happened back in 1986. Captain Tarauchi. Okay, so we had Aaron's oh, yes. brother-in-law. He lives in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked him how to pronounce this, and it's <laughs> I'm gonna say it wrong, even with his instructions, but it's Tarochi. 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 Okay, Captain so, Tarochi. If you're listening, Evan, thank you. Thank you. you. <laughs> We're probably still going to botch it, but I'm going to do my best. Captain Tarochi was a former fighter pilot and a senior airline pilot. I didn't turn my sound off, so sorry if you heard that uh, email that I just (laughs) drew everyone's attention to. So now you definitely heard it. (laughs) So Captain Tarochi was a former fighter pilot and senior airline pilot. He was flying a Boeing 747 cargo flight from Paris to Anchorage and then on to Tokyo. It was November 17th, 5.08 p.m. Traffic control in Anchorage contacted JAL, which I'm going to refer to it as JAL, which is Japan Airline. I'm going to refer to that instead of like flight 1628. So when I say JAL, I'm just talking about the but airplane, basically. Okay. So they contacted JAL when it was about 104 miles northeast of Fort Yukon, Alaska. So the captain noticed some lights outside the window to the left and somewhat below the plane. And he figured it was a military plane, so he kind of ignored them. But after a few minutes, he realized that the lights were pacing him. He contacted Anchorage twice in a row to ask if there were any other aircraft in the area, but nothing else was there. He was alone in the sky, military or otherwise, nothing else was there. So the lights started to move more erratically. So now he's starting to think like, hmm, I don't think this is an airplane. Initially, the lights were far enough away that he didn't feel that they were any danger to him, but the two craft appeared directly in front of the plane now. And they started like shooting off lights. So inside the cockpit. I have to say I was reading ahead and I saw that you wrote wooting off lights. <laughs> and I was like, no. wooting. I can't wait for her to get to this part. Like, I want to know what wooting is. I 
Um, I, there are so many. I feel like this is like been the elephant in the room. So I write out my notes like pretty detailed just so that I'm not going um and uh and like it just like makes me a little bit more concise. But I am a really bad speller. I'm also <laughs> dyslexic. So I have a tendency to spell things wrong, say things wrong, even like, so when I said 1986, I actually originally said 1968 and I'm probably going to edit that out, but Erin like pointed to it and she's, she just like points to dates because I screw them up all the time. I'll like reverse the numbers and stuff like that. And so anyway, there have been so many typos in this. Like every time I say plane, a lot of times I've been typing plan. Plan. Yeah. It's been really bad. And also I noticed instead of saying F-A-A, I will do F-F-A a lot. And like, there's just like weird stuff. So, but I feel like this is also, so if you want to know what I was like in school, it was always me reading ahead. (laughs) And yes. then having anxiety about crud, where were we? Yeah, <laughs> like... exactly. <laughs> so anyway, the plane was wooting off lights, which was super exciting. They were going, woo, woo. <laughs> so inside the JAL cockpit, it was illuminated. <laughs> oh my God, this is so bad. <laughs> my notes say it was not illuminated so bright. But it was. It but was. it was. It actually was. <laughs> So inside the cockpit, it was illuminated so bright that they could feel the warmth on their face. So not only was it bright, but it was actually like it was there was a temperature change. And he felt that the light was from whatever was actually propelling the craft forward. He said it was like a thruster or something. A few seconds later, the lights stopped and now they were small circle lights And they flew at the same speed as the JAL. And it seemed like it was propelling some type of square-shaped ship that was about 500 to 1,000 feet in front of them, but a little higher up in altitude. And the object was about the size of a DC-8, according to Captain Terucci. And I don't know what that means, but it was big. Because I I think a DC-8 is like an airplane that you fly in. Oh, well, like, I think as opposed to the airplanes you don't yes. fly. <laughs> so I think it's smaller than a 747, but like, I think like a DC-8 would maybe be, I don't know, I could be totally wrong. I hope that my dad is not listening to the podcast <laughs> because he's probably like, my daughter is a complete moron and is like, has no idea what she's talking about. But like, I think a DC-8 would maybe be something that like you would fly like like a commuter plane or something, you know, like a small plane. The next time we talk about planes, we you should send him a spreadsheet I of know. all the plane names. And then next week, he should just write small, large, really big. I know. <laughs> I should. I actually, so tangent here, I actually reached out to him when we were talking about the missing Douglas. And I said, hey, do you know anything about this plane? And he told me a little bit about it. And none of it was like really anything that it was kind of like I would have had to go into another story to tell you about some of it. So it just I didn't put it in the show notes or I didn't put it in like the script or anything. But last night 
when I woke up in the middle of the night, I was watching a show. I usually fall asleep watching Expedition Unknown, just <laughs> a little thing about me. And I woke up and he was flying in like one of the last remaining like versions of this Douglas plane that went missing. It was oh just so weird. I was like, oh my gosh. And he was actually talking about the same piece of information that my dad sent me. Interesting. <laughs> like, what? So anyway, okay. Back to what we were talking about. So it, this object was obviously big, according to the captain. So once again, he didn't feel like it was threatening at this point. He more or less was just like watching it with curiosity. So this whole time, air traffic control was unable to see anything on their radar. Inside the cockpit, an in-flight weather radar. And on this, he was actually able to see that there was a big round object about seven or eight miles away. One of the Tic Tacs. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting that you say that actually. On this, so from my understanding, this was not the light that they were seeing this was something else so this was the direction that the light flew away from so it's almost like there was like a mothership or something and then there was like this little scout thing or something so at this point they were over ellison air force base so i can imagine how this must have played out <laughs> this next part that i'm going to say they look in the direction of this giant object that appears to be tailing them because you could see on this in-flight like weather radar thing that there's this giant thing. And he said that it's the size of two aircraft carriers. So could you imagine you look and there's this giant thing. And so at this point, it goes from like, oh, neat, it's a UFO to like, oh my gosh, we need to get a we need to like get away from this thing. So they attempt some evasive maneuvers, but this is a 747 evasive cargo jet. Maneuvers? Yes. <laughs> this is a 747 cargo jet. It would be like trying to do an evasive maneuver in like a school bus. <laughs> so there's not much they can do. They're limited to like flying in a circle and changing altitude. And this thing came from a different planet or a different dimension so whatever you're trying to do can they like stick their hand out and be like go around, go around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so whatever he's trying to do it wasn't very evasive <laughs> so it was just kind of like shadowing whatever he was doing <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like honking so Air traffic control offered to scramble a military jet, but the JAL felt that this could have provoked the thing into taking some type of like aggressive action. So he declined. So around the same time, there was a United Airlines passenger jet <laughs> around the same airspace. So air traffic asked if they could get a visual on whatever was happening to the JAL, which would you imagine? If I was a pilot and someone was like, hey, there is something freaky following me. Can you see what it is? I'd like shut it off and like pretend we did not get the <laughs> we message. Didn't hear that. I know. So could you imagine you're sipping your ginger ale because we realized recently we both do that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and you open up your little window shade and there's like the Star Trek Enterprise <laughs> tailing a 747 out your window. I feel like I would just like shut the window shade and be like. I need some drama me. Yeah. And I'm just going to pretend that this isn't happening. So anywho, it probably was good that this other, other plane came by because according to the JAL, 
again, this captain's name, I am avoiding saying because I think that I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> when the captain, when the United flight came into view, the spaceship legit just like disappeared according to him. Like he couldn't see hmm. it anymore and it ended the encounter. So it was about 150 miles away from Anchorage and the whole encounter lasted about 50 minutes according to Captain Teyuchi. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. so. I think we're doing it right. So John Callahan from the FAA Division of Accidents and Investigations was contacted about a week after the incident. And a side note here, I'm pretty sure this is what my grandpa did after he left the Air Force. Oh. Yeah. I remember my dad saying that my grandpa would investigate accidents for the FAA. Wow. Yeah. So, anywho, the military refused to send their, refused to send their data to the FAA which is kind of not surprising, <laughs> but I don't think that they realized that air traffic control did send everything. And that included a three-way three -way conversation between NORAD, air traffic control, and the JAL. So according to this conversation, while air traffic couldn't see this, the military had been tracking the UFO on a height finding radar. So I don't really know what the difference is between that and what the air traffic radar used, but I'm guessing it was probably more sophisticated. And I'm wondering if it maybe scanned like a greater height, you know, and like the air traffic one was more honed in on like a specific like flying altitude of like jets, you know, mm -hmm. that's what I'm kind of guessing. So, I mean, but I'm just a podcaster. So what do I know? I think we've already like shown that I don't know much about airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> more than more than me. Well, that's there you go. Maybe, maybe. So according to NORAD, the UFOs were traveling at thousands of miles per hour as they maneuvered around the 747. So this was probably those first lights that he was seeing, remember, when he was seeing those lights? Also, according to the conversation at the end of the encounter, when everyone thought that the giant UFO disappeared when the United Airlines passenger jet came to investigate, and that that ended the experience. It actually didn't. It actually moved in behind the United Airlines flight and it tailed it. Dang. Yeah. So I'm not sure how long it did that, but yeah, it was just flying behind that passenger jet for a while. Mm -hmm. So Callahan, the FAA dude, was told not to discuss any of this until he was given the okay. I mean, like he was ever going to be given the okay. Right. Thing. He was briefed by the FBI, the CIA, and three people from Reagan's scientific study team, which I'm surprised that Reagan even knew any anything about this because it kind of seems like, at least this day and age, it's not like our government knows as much about this as like other people. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's part of what's happening with these congressional hearings. It seems like our government doesn't really know what's going on. And that's part of why they're having these hearings because they don't know. So I'm surprised that like Reagan even knew about this. You know yeah. what I mean? So, and remember, we're talking about 1986. So this was the Reagan administration. After this briefing, he was given the same stereotypical, we never met, this never happened, all that. But clearly he told somebody because we know about it. And this is like highly documented, you know? So I think we can assume like this happened, you know? Mm -hmm. And there are plenty more encounters in the Alaskan Triangle. This was just the most famous. There are plenty more UFO encounters in the Alaskan Triangle. 
This is just the most famous, but what I find interesting are all the reports of UFOs emerging from the ocean. And this isn't isolated to the triangle. There are many accounts of this happening all over the place, UFOs and UAP activity, the stuff originating in the water. And recall our episode on the UAP phenomena from last season. Mm -hmm. There was that footage, I think from the USS Roosevelt, where there were these orbs that were coming and going out of the ocean. And then even Commander Fravor's experience that seemed to start with that weird crisscross shaped object in the water before he saw the TikTok. Oh my God, I did it again. <laughs> the TikTok shaped object. And go back and listen to that episode if you haven't, because I mean, we talk about everything and these are like the OG UAP sightings. So it'll tell you everything you need to know if you don't know about that stuff. So in 1969, Dan Willis was a Naval communication officer. He was a high speed code operator who sat in the Naval communications code rooms in San Francisco. So as part of his job, he had a top secret clearance since he would receive and interpret the communications coming from our naval craft out in the seas. So that's what I think my grandpa did. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know he did like the decoding stuff mm -hmm. and he was in the Navy and he couldn't talk about anything. Yeah. That's so. kind of what I was thinking when I read this. I was like, yeah. I wonder. Yeah. So that's what this guy did. And he receives a message from a ship off the coast of Alaska near the Triangle. And I'm not specifically sure where it was. But this was in Morse code. So off the port side of the ship. So this would be if you're standing on the ship looking forward mm -hmm. as the ship moves forward, this would be to your left. He saw a glowing, well, not he, the Navy <laughs> saw mm -hmm. a red orange elliptical object come directly out of the ocean and shoot directly up into space. The object was about 70 feet in diameter, and according to the radar, it was going over 7,000 miles per hour. Oh my gosh. So Officer Willis passed this message to his superiors, and I think it goes without saying that in 1969, we didn't have anything that could do this. We probably still don't. <laughs> so Willis does some research and finds out that going back to 1945, there are a bunch of reports similar to this stuff shooting out of the water like this. So the USS Delaroff was out in the Aleutian Islands and there were ripples that were spotted in the water about a mile away when all of a sudden a large object emerges from the water. This time it's about 150 to 200 feet wide and it circles the boat. I think it's like flying, I'm guessing. It didn't really specify, but I'm thinking it's flying when it circles the boat. There's no noise doesn't seem to be impacted by the wind at all or anything like that. And then all of a sudden it just shoots off and out of view. And all 14 members of the crew in that case signed a summary report stating that they saw the same thing. Oh, I love when more than one person sees the yep, same thing. Yep. And to go out on a limb and, you know, sign your name to something, mm -hmm. you know, really puts some credibility to it. So all of the reports that Officer Willis found were essentially very similar. Something emerges from the ocean and then zooms off into the sky. So there was one more eyewitness account that I want to include here. And this, these are civilian accounts. Locals in Whittier, Alaska have reported seeing lights frequently coming and going out of the sky in the water near Smitty's Cove. This was an inlet off of Prince William Sound. 
on the Alaskan Triangle series on the Discovery Channel that I got this from, and a link to the exact episode, they do an interview with the eyewitness who lives off of the sound and reports literally seeing hundreds of these lights, and she calls them ships coming out of the water, and they do kind of like a reenactment of it, which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting to see. She actually said thousands at one point. And she said that they rose out of the water and when they got into the sky, they just shot up straight into the sky and they disappeared. And what I find is interesting and why I even included this, all the other reports that I just inclu included prior to this were military reports. But the reason I included this one is it kind of comes full circle because Whittier is actually right by the trailhead at Portage Pass that we were just discussing. It was one of the initial search locations for the missing Hale Boggs Nick Baggage flight. And remember, locals witnessed the plane in Whittier. They thought they witnessed, you know, hearing a plane, which would have indicated the flight made it through Portage Pass so that Prince William Sound was the primary search location initially. So I just find it fascinating that this weird phenomena is happening in the same area as one of the last possible locations of this mysterious flight that disappeared. So Erin, I understand you have some reports of some non-airborne variety that you want to talk to us about, right? I sure do. Now, Christy, have you heard of the Kushtaka? No. Okay. Well, I just want to know if I was saying it right. So. Sounds like a Russian grandma. <laughs> it does. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, so uh, we will get to this in a second, but one theory that many people have is that this specific triangle is a massive swirling energy vortex. Mm. So we've talked about these before, but people believe that they can impact human behavior, okay. emotions, cause fear. Um, according to the Travel Channel, which has seasons all about the Alaska yeah. Triangle, is this the same thing as the Discovery Channel? Yeah, like, I think, they... you know what? I think I might have actually said discover channel when i meant travel channel i'm sorry travel channel <laughs> we love you we love you all the same either way i'll link to it in the show notes the right one yes <laughs> so they say that depending on how a vortex spins that it can affect us in different ways so counterclockwise makes us feel negative and bewildered Ooh. i liked that word well let's be living in one of those right yeah. now <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> While clockwise affects us more positively. Okay. Um, so now this is just speculation, but there are actually higher magnetic irregularities in this area up to 30 degrees off in some places. That's interesting. You know, I've heard something similar um, about this in, um, what's that place in, I think it's Arizona where everybody goes. Mm -hmm. um it's like a place where people go on like yoga retreats and stuff like that all i can think oh, of sure. is napa and it's not napa <laughs> um but it's there's like a place in arizona i think you know what you're talking about yeah, yeah it's like this we'll have to look it up yeah so researchers so researchers have looked at this area they reported hearing audio hallucinations and this feeling of being disoriented. The native people say that this is all caused by the Kushtaka. Some people say that this is a type of Bigfoot. Wow. Mm -hmm. However, it can shapeshift. When I did my Bigfoot, Big Feet, or whatever the <laughs> plural, yes, the plural is, around the world research back in our Bigfoot episode, mm -hmm. which just to say it up front, I'm sorry if I repeat myself because I can't remember what we talked about personally, what we yeah. put in the episode. I tried to like 
look back and make yeah. sure, but I might repeat myself. I feel like we we put so much research into an episode. It's like you almost immediately have to like dump it from your brain to like yeah put more information in for the next episode. Right. <laughs> so I don't believe I encountered this exact type of Bigfoot. Oh gosh, I hope you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, not in real life, but in my in my research. Yes. Yes. Um, so they say that this one is more evil behaving and is otter like. Oh, mm-hmm. so it can disguise itself as a person close to you and will plead for help while leading the victim farther and farther away from safety. Ooh. When it finally lures the victim far enough, it will either tear them limb from limb or it turns them into another kushtaka. Ooh. Okay. So are we sure that this isn't the Denali Coven from, from Twilight? Because, I mean, seriously, technically that coven of vampires was vegetarian. But I wonder if Stephanie Myers, who wrote Twilight, placed some characters there because of all the mysterious happenings in the area. So. <laughs> okay. I, um, I've i only watched the first episode of Twilight and I didn't read the books. So Stop it. Yeah, I'm sorry. But if V is out there listening, she's probably like really close to her phone right now. <laughs> yes. And like you know, imaginally having this conversation oh my with gosh. You through like her Spotify. So yes. So <laughs> I actually did go off on a search <laughs> to check and see if there were shape shifting vampires in her book. If uh-huh. the, the, the shape shifting the shape shifting vampires that she had were from Alaska. Okay. But they were not. They were from different areas. Maybe she drew on that though from like her in her ideas. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is the first cryptid I've heard about that can turn a human into one of its own. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly, it, it seems very vampire-like. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. So they supposedly have a three-part whistle that goes low high and then back low again and if i could whistle i would do that for you i can't either so we'll (laughs) just pretend use your imagination can i also mention it's kind of zombie like too you know yeah like when you get bit by a zombie right you turn into a zombie i should have i should have done more zombie research (laughs) so not to worry though you can ward these off with garlic I'm just kidding. It's not, it's not garlic. So they say that (laughs) copper, dogs, sometimes fire, and my personal favorite, good old fashioned urine. Okay. So if you start being chased by one of these, just pee yourself. Problem solved because I probably would. (laughs) They'll be like, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. I would probably pee myself and we'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. So I did read a funny comment when I was researching this. It said that the Kushtaka actually is saving the victims from the harsh cold weather by turning them into a Kushtaka themselves and that they actually distract them with otter-like illusions of their loved ones. Did a Kushtaka write this? (laughs) <laughs> is he like trying to justify his behavior he's like yes. i'm actually trying to help <laughs> but i'd like to know what is an otter like illusion oh that's a really good question like i i have no comments on this i have no idea <laughs> and i found no explanation otter like illusions of their loved ones <laughs> i don't even know where to go with that i don't okay yeah all right i'll leave you with that <laughs> So another tale that I found from the natives in Alaska is the story of the Qualupalik. And I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, I I don't know. They don't know. I noticed that they don't don't put U's after their Q's. 
Oh it's my confusing. gosh. Yeah. I've, I've seen that a lot and it's confusing to me. That's never been pointed out to me. Yeah. Interesting. So the qualipolic who snatches children um, who specifically wander without permission from their parents. Oh, she okay. is half human and half sea creature that will find disobeying children or children who disrespect their elders Ooh. who are also wandering by the shore. I think there's a Mexican um, like cultural story about something like that too, actually. That like a creature or something that does yeah. that. Um, they say that she never blinks. She's always watching. Oh, that's creepy. She targets children to keep her young. So, okay, Mother Gothel. <laughs> that's creepy. <laughs> to keep her skin green and her hair special. Have you seen Tangled? No. Stop. That was my Mother Gothel reference. I just tried to like nod like I knew. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a boy mom. So like we never saw Tangled. I'm you sorry. need to watch it. Just watch it. This I want to. Look. These are all the things that I like want to watch. And then my son's like, I don't want to watch that. And so I don't, I don't see it. He would love it. I'm sure he would. Yeah. I'm sure he would. He would like Maximus. Just trust me. Sure he would. So if I were a kid, this story would have scared the absolute daylights out yeah, of me. Totally. Um, so next we have another version of Bigfoot, the Alaskan Bushman, or as some people call it, the tale of the hairy man. Okay. Okay. I love, what if there's just some poor hairy man walking around yeah. and he's like, they wrote a story about me? Because if you were an Alaskan Bush man, you probably don't have access to a razor like regularly. Yeah. And you're probably just hairy. Yeah. For real. So... Anyway, the Inuit believe that these creatures were descended from people who lived in the area called the Tornet. So the Tornet and the Inuit used to coexist okay. until one of the Tornets destroyed a very special canoe okay. of the Inuits. This was a apparently a very important okay. canoe. A fancy canoe. Yes. The Inuits then killed the guilty Tornet and then the rest of the Tornet fled. They supposedly come back to cause chaos for the Inuits and even will target hunters that eventually go missing. Hmm. But the great news about this, okay. they smell terrible. Okay. So if you like feel like something is following you and you smell the stinky smell, just get out of there. Does urine work? They did not talk about okay. urine with this one. I'm just so. going to go with urine just as a fail safe so that, <laughs> yeah. you know. Just, just in case. Urinate yourself no matter what. <laughs> Probably goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> so there are also the... Oh, gosh. No, you can see this word. The stonalasia. I'm, I'm okay, okay. There's a lot of consonants next to consonants, and yes. I don't know how to pronounce those. I know. Stonalasia sounds good to me. Yep. So they're rumored to live in the Kenai Peninsula, which is along the edge of the Alaskan okay. Triangle. So some of these creatures have more of a home base and some are rumored to be all around in the area. Okay. So when I did this, I had a picture of the Alaskan Triangle. Mm -hmm. And if I could find a creature who supposedly did have a home base, mm -hmm. I would make sure that it was inside the Triangle. Okay. Um, so these creatures are a hairy human type creature about the same size as a human up to double the oh, size. Okay. So very Bigfoot like, yeah. but with a very long nose and a tail. Oh, so they'll mimic the sound of birds or sometimes other animal sounds. They say that it can never perfectly imitate an animal. So if you learn to recognize the imperfections, mm -hmm. you can spot them. 
They believe it may hibernate because it's only reported during the summer. Okay. Which I thought was very interesting. That's interesting, yeah. They refer to it as the people-stealing monster, so mm. very, very specific. Um, it will not kill anybody. It lures them away to fall into a type of coma and can only be woken up from a sign of the cross, holy water, or a song, specifically a good luck song. Okay, so I feel like the start of this was very like normal scientific yeah. like okay yeah. okay i'm buying it and then it just kind of went way yeah <laughs> i was waiting for it to be like or oh, true love's kiss we'll yeah make exactly it, up. it turned into a straight up yes. fairy tale <laughs> it, i know i'm very very uh disneyfying yes, in all of these exactly so, yeah. <laughs> so some people refer to this one as a type of sasquatch yeah yeah um another creature also comes from the Inuit tribe. It's a creature called the Adlet, which is half human and half dog. So Christy, what half do you think is human and what half do you think is oh, dog? Oh, I love questions like this. I'm going to go with the face is human and the back half is dog. Okay. Well, it's the bottom half that is the dog in this tale. Okay. So, okay. There, I was there you right. Go. I was right. Oh, yeah. Were you going with the other way? Were you thinking it the other way? Like dog hat? I wasn't sure. And then I always wonder why is it always like top and bottom? Yeah, that's true. What if it's like split down the middle? That's true. That's... We haven't encountered a creature like that. Exactly. That's true. Yeah. So they can run very fast. They're taller than humans, but they don't seem so good at fighting. Okay. Well, think of how uncoordinated you'd be <laughs> if you had a dog leg and a human arm. I know. I know. <laughs> so. In most of the stories, they are not the victor when they meet a human and end up in battle. Okay. So it's interesting because we get an origin story with this creature. Oh, I like that. So get ready. Okay. Um, they say that a woman mated with a dog and had 10 babies. Okay. <laughs> five dog pups and five half-human dog creatures that would become the Adlets. Okay. This story has been told a few different ways, but in my most favorite way. This woman had a bunch of male suitors. Okay. And she didn't like one of them. So she told them all, I oh, know, thank you. And then she married this white and red spotted dog instead. <laughs> These suitors. I know. Must have needed therapy after that. <laughs> They're like, oh my God. She married a dog. Can you imagine a breakup and then you see her with the dog afterwards? Like, really? <laughs> really? This is the guy that she told you not to worry about. That's a dog. <laughs> I yeah. knew that she was weird about that dog. <laughs> so, um, sadly, both her and her dog husband had issues due to some family disputes. <laughs> they should have gone to counseling, but they didn't. They did not. So, yeah. Um, her father was sick of hunting for the dog husband because the dog husband didn't want to or couldn't hunt for himself and the pups. Okay. So okay. he was he, kind of a deadbeat. Yeah. So he was like, well, he loved her. He just didn't hunt for some reason. Okay. So he like went, I believe they said on an island. Okay. And then the, the father would help hunt the meat and bring it back to okay. the dog husband. Okay. So the father drowned the dog husband. Okay. He like, I guess... They mentioned um, he would carry these boots around his neck when he would like swim back and forth. Okay. And the dad filled them with rocks oh. and it sunk him to the bottom. It was creative. I know. So she was obviously pissed. Yeah. So she sent her pups to gnaw off her father's feet and his hands in retaliation. Oh. I know. Oh. The father then is also pissed mm -hmm. and he waits till the next time she's on his boat 
and he kicks her overboard. But while she is hanging by the edge, he cuts off her fingers and legend has it when they fall into the ocean, they mm-hmm. turn into whales and seals. So she then, <laughs> she then fingerless and afraid for her pup children, yes. sends them far away to protect them from her evil father. Okay. So this story is actually not unique to Alaska. Really? It's told all around the world in different versions, including Alaska, Greenland, Canada, and Scandinavia. Seriously? Yes. That is so weird. So I know I'm being a pop culture freak during this episode, <laughs> but this could 100% be a Disney totally movie, right? Be. Yeah. So like Disney, if you're listening, you've got Native American culture. So mm-hmm. you've got to do this respectfully and correctly. Yes. You could hire Native actors to tell a story. You've totally. got a spectacular villain. Mm-hmm. That dad mean. Yes. A story of two star-crossed lovers. And let me tell you. I went on a journey looking up native musicians and actors. <laughs> I was listening to native music. I found this guy, Johnny Isaluk, who's an actor. Oh my God. <laughs> and he's from Canada. And I was on his YouTube trying to find like videos to see if he would fit the part right. Oh my God. And then I had to be like, snap out of this because you're not a you're not a director. You you only produced <laughs> half a movie. I know. Like I don't I don't need to find these things. I I just need to. I just need to finish this and go to bed. But I went <laughs> off. I I think it was an hour. Oh my god! Like okay, you like produced half a Disney movie. Like you had animations. I did. You had a cast. You probably had like songs. You've songs somewhere, don't you? Yeah. You had like <laughs> musical breaks, like like the villain song. I feel like I'd want Lin Manuel Miranda to produce part of it because, <laughs> like, just amazing. So. Besides the Adlet trying to seek vengeance for their father, I didn't really find many stories of them being particularly dangerous. Okay. So this All leads right. me to cats. Cats with a K. Not anything like your cute kitties around mm-hmm. the house. But yes. these cats are made when a man mates with a bear. <laughs> I was not ready for that. I know. I know. <laughs> we segued from my cute little cats to a man mating with a bear. Yeah. So okay. another good origin story. These stories go off in all directions after this. They say it's related to Bigfoot, that they are tough to kill, and that thousands of hunters have tried even shooting at them, and they all failed. Okay. Hmm. So, however, these seem to be, these seem more like they had a lot of issues mixing the human and bear genes together. I feel like that might be a problem. Yeah. yeah. So, some of them have major defects, like having two heads or a one-legged <laughs> bear, and they did not expand on the one-legged bear thing. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> what, is the, what is he hop like a pogo stick? I or? assume he rolls. Oh yeah, I mean, I hope like either the he can tuck it in and roll. What if he's what, what if it's flat terrain? I, yeah, maybe he kind of uses it to push himself to keep <laughs> rolling. That poor bear. I know. Um, this is why men should never mate with bears. Anyway, yes. <laughs> No mating with bears, people, no matter how tempting it might be. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, A book was written about these creatures in 1994. So I think it was written before 1994. Okay. But the one that I found on Amazon, Uh um, it's called The Strangest Story Ever Told. You don't say. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) And it's told by some prospectors who were in the area. One went to a specific area to find quartz. And that they were told they could find there. Mm-hmm. And they saw these 
um, quote, devil creatures. They describe them as genderless, but like a mix between a man and a monkey covered in long coarse hair and scabs and open sores. So he said the air was full of their cries and the smell of their bodies made him faint. You know what I just thought of? Maybe the leg wasn't a leg. Oh, gross. maybe they weren't genderless. Oh, maybe they maybe they weren't. Maybe he was just well endowed. Oh, <laughs> continue. continue. <laughs> so he said that it, I read the whole story. He said it made him faint. But then he went on to say he turned and ran. So I don't know when he fainted. So I'm, I'm kind of confused. And they were so close to him that he could feel their breath on his back. And they were scraping at his back. They were so close trying to get to him. So he did end up reaching his canoe. And he said that he came to lying on the bottom of his canoe, drifting away. Okay. okay. So the Tlingit people in Alaska say mm-hmm. that they are very passive creatures unless provoked. Okay. So I believe they say, he said that he tried to shoot at them. Okay. So maybe that's what provoked them. I mean, they should be easy to outrun though. Right. the one like anyway there are far more stories of creatures in alaska mostly from native tribes i won't go over all of them Mm -hmm. but i will leave you with this final one and bonus i'm going to talk about another nerdy topic at the end of this so let me know if you can guess what i'm going to reference before i say it and this one's not about disney or twilight okay i'm excited this is about the Keelet, which is also an Inuit story, and this creature has more scary stories connected to it. It is a mostly hairless dog. They say that the hair it does have is on its feet so that you can't see its paw prints in the snow or the dirt. Okay, okay. So many people who have studied this spirit link it directly to European stories of a dog as well. <gasps> the black dog from the Harry Potter? Yes! yes! <laughs> I'm on that book right now. I'm reading it to my son. Oh, nice. So, nice. Okay. I can't remember its name, though. The Groot or something? No. The Grim. The Grim. The Grim. The Grim. Yes. Groot. Something else. Okay. Um, so they have a lot in common. In Europe, they just call it the Black Dog. Okay. They say in both areas to watch out when you see this Black Dog because it means danger is about to come. And then I wrote... In my notes, the Grim. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you got it. I knew you would. When you started this, I was like, I'm not gonna know what you're talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in Europe, they reference this demonic dog in a Sherlock Holmes book, The Hound of Bask, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So I guess one more thing to mention. Fun story, but mm-hmm. Alaska also has their own version of the Loch Ness monster, Illy. Oh, which wow. is a cute little name. Can I just say here real quick, everywhere has their own version of the Loch Ness Monster. So I'm just going to say, I feel like whatever is the Loch Ness Monster, they're like a real thing, but live in water. Yeah. Because like everywhere has a Loch Ness Monster. I know. So this one's named after Lake Iliama. And I think, I don't even need to hear the other names of the Loch Ness Monster. This is the cutest name. It is. So, Iliama. I like that name. So people report her, and I'm just assuming she's a she, mm-hmm. anywhere from 25 to 60 feet long. The Anchorage Daily News offered people $100,000 for proof that Illy existed. Wow. So I'm not going to go too much into this one because it's technically just outside of the triangle. Okay. And I think we might be talking about Loch Ness Loch Nessies later. So I'll just leave this nugget of information. And that is all I've got on the Alaskan cryptids. Wow. 
That's a lot. I was, that is more than I was expecting. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it doesn't surprise me. There's so much like wilderness and stuff like that. Like why wouldn't there be stuff that like we don't know exists out there? Right. So what do we think is happening in the Alaskan Triangle? So you talked about energy vortexes. Mm -hmm. I still didn't come up with the name of the place I was talking about. I still am just thinking of Napa in Arizona, and Napa is not in Arizona. I was going to say that's not. I think I know that the, Muriel, I think, is the name of like the retreat that people go to, though. Okay. And it's in Arizona, and they talk about the same thing. They talk about um, that there's like these energy vortexes, and you can actually get like magnetic readings that are different there, hmm. and people feel different, and there are um, Native American legends associated with these energy vortexes in that area of the world as well. Um, so I just find that kind of fascinating. Yeah. You know, it's a completely different area. But so I guess, okay, if you have these energy vortexes, is it possible that they could be letting things in or out for that matter? So perhaps things could fly in or fly out, mm -hmm. you know? Um, could it have something to do with like, could it be like a doorway or maybe the edge of like a wormhole or something like that? I mean, that's what I believe. Yeah. That's what I think is going mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Or could some type of intelligence maybe be using the conditions in this area to take advantage of that and enter here or there, you know? Um, another thing that I was thinking about is, you know, with it being so close to the poles, could it make like the fabric of our reality more permeable or something, you know? Why not all three of these things? Yeah. Could it be all of that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other fact is that it's so remote, it could be a good place to hide, you know, otherworldly or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So we want to hear your theories. I also hope that you all check out the bonus episode. Um, we delve even more into the weirdness surrounding Alaska there, more disappearances. So a little true crime for all you true crime fans out there, weird owl phenomena, which we talked about a little bit at the beginning of the episode. Our subscription is only $1.99 a month. So for that's less than what you all spend at Starbucks. Exactly. So for less than a soda or your Starbucks, <laughs> as you just said, you can support your favorite podcast and you're in at that price forever. So if we raise it in the future, um, which, you know, if we end up adding more benefits included in that, you'll always be grandfathered in at that price. So you'll never pay more than $1.99 for the bonus episodes. Um, we also, we have some fun projects planned and we just need a little bit more support to get those off the ground. So this is one way that we're hoping to do that. Also keep an eye on our social media for merchandise. We ran into a little roadblock in the 11th hour. We were planning on having that rolled out for you guys with the release of this episode with like the kickoff of our new season. And we realized that we had an additional hoop to jump through, which it's kind of a big hoop, but yeah, <laughs> stay tuned. It's coming. We figured it out. We just have to like, you know, do it. And mm -hmm. I have to say the prototypes look really good. My son has a kid's hoodie and he gets so many compliments on it. Mm -hmm. So it's really fun. And I'm excited for you guys to see those. So as always, please give us a five-star rating, follow, share, tune into our social media at Mysteriously Eclectic Podcast on Insta and at Mysteriously Eclectic Pod on TikTok. And we will catch up with you guys next week for our next episode. Thanks for listening. See you later. Mm -hmm.